0: This is The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, a podcast about the greatest sports movies of all time. I'm your host, Bruce Murray. Of the countless sports movies that have been released over the past 30 years, Cool Runnings might be the most culturally significant. Released in 1993, the film tells the story of the Jamaican bobsled team that competed in the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. It's an incredibly funny, incredibly touching, and incredibly inspiring movie that teaches us perseverance pays off. The story of the Jamaican bobsled team has always resonated heavily with comedian Dougie Doug, who plays everyone's favorite character in the film, or at least it's my favorite character in the film, Sanka Coffee. His father actually hailed from Jamaica and was very proud of his heritage. Doug has fond memories of following the Jamaican bobsled team and their incredible story during the winter of 1988. For those of you that need a refresher about what happened in 1988, the Jamaican bobsled team made up of ex-servicemen who had never even heard of bobsledding just two years prior, won the hearts of every viewer in the world by defying all the odds and showing they belong on the world stage. Here's Doug.
1: It has a very uh, powerful impact on just my relationship with him because, you know, he thought I was a Jafaken. And uh, so, but that was a moment where we were bonded. So we were very alienated from each other at that point. But, you know, the whole immigrant thing, And uh, so I was very, it was a a big part of my
0: consciousness. When Doug was initially introduced to the project that would eventually become Cool Runnings, it was actually a drama called Blue Maga. I don't know what that meant either, but I've learned that it's Jamaican slang for being in serious trouble. And Doug wasn't completely sold on the tone of the film because it just didn't feel right to him.
1: And then they were like, we're going to do it as a comedy. And I'm like, now you're talking. (laughs) It was sort of like... This idea that true life is just not as entertaining as, <laughs> as a comedy, you know, that's contrived, but that's some of the based on a true story is uh, what we have now.
0: While reimagining the script as a comedy was exciting to Doug, make no mistake, it came with a few concerns. The biggest being how much the studio wanted to play into the often dubious Jamaican stereotypes.
1: It was a concern of not only mine, but the other guys who played, in the, uh, played the other characters. And we had to do some, uh, you know, negotiating with the studio, with the producers uh, to, and in some cases, some, we had some contentious uh, battles with certain things uh, to make sure that, you know, there was a, a, the essential dignity of these guys were, were not going to be tarnished by uh, shenanigans that they might, you know, that they might just want to play for laughs. You know, we, we, we thought that there were enough laughs, you know, my character was sort of responsible for the comedy in a sense. So as long as I remain physical, uh, you know, I, I always look at it as a, Jama- I, as a Jamaican Jerry Lewis. You know, that's, that's what
0: I got do. Devin Harris, one of the real-life members of the Jamaican bobsled team, had a very specific concern about how the film might portray the team and Jamaicans as a whole.
2: Our concern for those of us who are on the team was one thing that we didn't want them to portray us Smoking Weed. Because you know, there's a stereotypical view of Jamaican smoking weed, and um, not only w- w- wasn't it not true that we all smoke weed. None of us on the team smoked weed, and we didn't want that image out there.
1: They wanted to have us put a spliff and a snowman, you know, things like that. And we that actually was the biggest fight. You know, we were just we actually <laughs> we actually got to this to the set and saw the spliff on the snowman. We were just like, oh no! <laughs> like all of us kind of like. Our faces just dropped. We were like, we can't do this. We told the director we can't do it. He was like, it's a mutiny, blah, blah, blah. So eventually he just dropped it, and, I'm, and I you know, wisely.
0: Another concern the cast had was with the studio's insistence that they play their characters with American accents rather than Jamaican accents. According to the director, John Turtletop, he was threatened by the studio to make sure the cast sounded like Sebastian the Crab from The Little Mermaid. Or else he'd never work at Disney again. Similar feedback was given to Leon, who plays Doris Bannock, when he was told to liken his character to a Black Aladdin. Here's Doug again.
1: They were trying to negotiate a sounding American, which was ridiculous. You know, it's like let's try to, you know, and I and I we said, look, let's trust us and let's try to find the happy medium. You know, it was this whole idea of having people, you know, in Iowa or whatever, understand us. So, there was a lot of different things that
0: went on. So, what did the film get right about the real story, and what did it get wrong? Let's start off at the beginning, with the seed of an idea that would turn a group of Jamaican servicemen into bobsledders. In the years preceding the 1988 Olympics, two American businessmen, George Fitch, who would go on to become the first president of the Jamaica Bobsled Federation, and William Maloney, both lived in Jamaica. After witnessing a pushcart derby one night in Kingston... They noticed its similarity to bobsledding, so they decided to find athletes who they could train to become bobsledders. They put together a presentation and organized the first recruitment meeting. What followed was a scene mirrored in the movie. After showing various clips of the sport, which included huge crashes that showcased the violence of bobsledding, George flicked the light back on, only to see that everyone had left the hall. No one wanted to be part of this crazy sport. So, Fitch and Maloney approached the Jamaican Defense Force to ask for volunteers, or more accurately, to have prospects volunteered. And that brings us to the creation of the team. In the film, we see three of the eventual members of the bobsled team attempting to qualify for the 1988 Olympics. But not the Winter Olympics, the Summer Olympics in the 100 meter sprint. And they all fail to qualify when one of the sprinters, Junior Devil, accidentally trips over himself taking Doris Bannock and Yule Brenner with him. That's why they turned to bomb sledding as a way of fulfilling their Olympic dreams. The real-life story, as Devin tells us, is much different.
2: So if we go back to the summer of 1987, I'm a young officer in the Jamaica Defense Force. I'm on duty. It's a Friday. The clerk, the duty clerk, walks in with a big stack of mail. I pull one piece out. Uh, you could call it an, a newsletter. It's a little bit more important than that. Um, something called a f- the Force Orders, and I'm reading through it. Get to the point on sports, and it says something about those who wish to undergo dangerous and rigorous training to represent Jamaica in bobsledding at the Olympics and upcoming Olympics in Calgary should make themselves known. Now, I vaguely knew what bobsledding was. I never, never heard of a place called Calgary, and it just—I remember saying, "This is the most ridiculous idea ever." conceived by man. I mean, how in the world are you going to train a bobsled team from Jamaica? The Olympics are around the corner. You know, all the things that people think is what I thought initially. And I remember saying, nobody could ever get me to go on one of those things. I actually did use those words.
0: So one day Devin is sitting at work and his colonel tells him that he needs to talk with him. So what do you do when your colonel says he needs to talk to you? You start worrying. Instead, his colonel instructed Devin to go to the bobsled team trials Really from that moment, I knew I wanted to make the
2: team. I was going to go to the team trials and the way I'm wired, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to say, Oh, the Colonel told me to go to the team trials. I'm just going to go and participate and go home. No, if I'm there now, I have to make the team. How am I going to make the team though? I don't know because I didn't consider myself sports fit. I was what I would call armor fit. I could walk a hundred miles with 50 pounds on my back and a rifle in my hand. Um, but, I went, and I tried my darnest and I think they
0: liked my smile, and they selected me so what was it about Devin that appealed to those in charge of selecting the team? Well, it wasn't quite the fact that he was an excellent sprinter, like we see with the characters in the film, but trust me, it wasn't too far off. I caught his eye
2: because I just ran a cross country race and uh, and finished fourteen from forty, and they're like, "Oh my God, he's fit um." I'll be- See, when I was younger, you know, I was foolish, um, as you can probably tell, and I jumped from a plane. When I was in military training, I broke my ankle. When I was in England, and when I came back to Jamaica, I'm hobbling around barracks, and so I'm not the picture of an athlete. But now I'm healed, and it was 87, and I was dreaming of going to the Summer Olympics um, to compete in middle distances. So, you know, I I had some fitness. I didn't think I was Olympic ready yet. So in running that uh, and doing so well in that cross country race, it's like, okay, he'd send his young fit officer to make numbers. And I just um, went and made the team, which is not what he was anticipating.
0: Along with Harris, other members of the team, Dudley Stokes and Michael White were also plucked from the army. It was an incredibly successful campaign. Initially, the group trained for the two-man sled. It was only during the Olympics that the athletes decided to have a crack at the four-man sled, as the movie depicts. This would be the first time they had ever raced as a four-man team. Now, earlier we discussed the two businessmen, Fitch and Maloney, but they don't appear in the film. As Hollywood often does, they were combined into one character. And thankfully, they did so with the late, great John Candy, who became Irving Blitzer. Blitzer was a disgraced American bobsled champion, who fled to Jamaica to get as far away from the sport as he possibly could. Candy would die only months after the film was shot. In real life, the coach for the Jamaican bobsled team was Howard Seiler, who had a similar resume to Irving Blitzer's, having won a bronze medal at the World Championships in Lake Placid in 1969. There was, however, one very important difference between the two. Seiler was never banned from competition for cheating. In fact, and you may find this interesting... Even if he did put weights on his sled, like Blitzer does in the film, he still wouldn't have been banned from competition and banished the way Blitzer had. And that's because in real life, you're actually allowed to add weights to your sled. It's physics. Mass, times, velocity equals momentum. Now,
2: here's a funny thing. In 1988, I was the heaviest guy on our team. I was maybe 180 pounds. So the ideal situation is to have big, heavy guys and a really light sled to push. We had tons of weights to our sled. So we were pushing a much heavier sled, which made our start time even more remarkable because we're, we're small guys pushing a heavy sled. And we did that so that we wouldn't give up any of the momentum going down the track because we were so much lighter. But yeah, we our sled was heavy, boy.
0: Another difference between real life and the film was that in the film, the athletes had to raise their own money to go to Calgary. Can you imagine Olympic athletes having to come up with their own money? So what they do, they opened a kissing booth, which of course was classic. They sold their cars and they sang in the street. In real life, however, as you'd assume, they were already funded. There wasn't any need for this. They could just focus on training.
2: We started in September of 87 when we have our selection. We spent some time in Jamaica with this makeshift uh, sled and wheels pushing it, just practicing the start. And we know now that the technique we're using was all wrong. But that's what we did. That's what we trained. Three hours every afternoon during the week. Six hours on a Saturday morning. We pushed that thing. And then in mid-October of 87, we went to Calgary. And they said, well, this is what the track looks like. And this is a bobsled. Crawl in.
0: This makes me laugh as I think about it. The first time the Jamaicans run a course in the movie, we hear Sanka scream out in terror as the bobsled speeds down the icy track. Now, you may think that's Hollywood embellishing a moment and making us laugh and smile. But the truth is... For Devin, his experience during that first run was very similar.
2: People think I'm kidding when I tell them I'm scared of speed at night, but I am scared of speed at night. And, and um, I was, remember, I mean, terrified and crawling in a sled behind a guy who had never driven one before. And just I just resigned myself. I'm like, you know what, if I die, I die, but I'm going. And um, so I went and I lived and I went. So we had three runs that first night from the halfway point. So that's one of the things that it's a progressive thing, right? You sit in the sled and they nudge you off as slowly as possible. And it feels like you're flying, but man, you're probably going 20 miles an hour. I don't know. So on that first night, I remember on that third run, that very same corner in which we crashed, the Chrysler in corner nine in Calgary. We were screaming and I used that very loosely because it was all that fast. And I'm going, <laughs> I was having a ball, still scared, but I was having a ball. I was hooked in that moment. I was hooked on the sport.
0: Once we get to this point in the film, we see the Jamaicans successfully qualify for the finals, only to be disqualified by the Olympic Committee. Now, of course, Hollywood always needs conflict. But according to Devin, it didn't happen in real life. There was no qualification process back then. All the teams, except for Jamaica, they'd been competing for years. They had established programs. The committee didn't feel like there was any need for a qualification process, so teams could just run the four-man or the two-man sled at their will.
2: And then these four <laughs> guys from Jamaica turn around and go, hey, what time are the Olympics? <laughs> oh, cool. <well." laughs> and they're like, what? Wait, 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 What? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, 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 no. You have to qualify. They were like, but there are no qualification process. So, the the story, as I understand it, because we, you know, we the athletes are just like in overdrive trying to learn. But they go, uh uh, oh, you have to do a race. <laughs> and so, we ended up doing um, a World Cup race against many of the B teams from many of the major nations. And that essentially was a qualification.
0: By the way, come 1993, a rule known unofficially as the Jamaica rule was actually created, which meant that certain qualification criteria were now required for all countries wanting to compete in the Olympics. But back to 1988 when it wasn't necessary. The Jamaican bobsled team finally makes their way to Calgary, where according to the movie, they're rejected by the greater bobsled community. No one seems to want them there. Why? Because they were different. The Jamaicans were making a mockery of the sport.
2: Yeah, so yeah, so that dynamic didn't happen. You're right. That's just a figment of Hollywood's imagination. Um and anybody who's in sports know that, yeah, there are there may be some athletes who don't like each other and really you'll find a team because of years and years of rivalry that absolutely hate each other. But generally athletes don't treat each other that way. They're very friendly and kind and helpful we didn't really meet any of the big players until we got to the olympic games and if you understand the olympics man this is the biggest race in four years nobody have time to waste energy on a bunch of jamaicans in fact they're probably going well we're never going to beat them <laughs> kind of thing, you know um one of the experiences i had uh, was sitting in it's called a warm house where you hang out before you go down the track and you know, kind of taking in the environment and learning and trying to compete at the same time. As I'm sitting there in the in the midst of this mayhem, a guy called Wolfgang Hoppe. Um, Hoppe was the best driver at the time from the former East Germany. He paused from his preparations and he smiled. Never said a word. Handed me a pin, which in my mind said, "Hey, you know, welcome to the brotherhood of bobsledders. You know, uh, you're you're one, you're one with us." So. That, that, that was my experience.
0: Let's fast forward to the finals. The finals are made up of four runs, with each of those runs counting towards a team's total time. The winner is the team with the lowest aggregate of the four times, which obviously means if a team crashes during any of their runs, it's impossible for them to win. The Jamaican bobsled team put on a great showing in the first two runs, but ultimately crashed in the third and penultimate run and were unable to finish the race. The athletes proceed to pick up the sled and carry it across the finishing line while spectators around them applauded. You see that in the movie and you go, this must be made up. But the truth is it was real. It actually happened in real life. The athletes picked up the sled and carried it the rest of the way down. Not because they were determined to finish the race like they showed in the movie. They had a more obvious reason to do it.
2: Because he had to get off the track. <laughs>
0: but, <laughs> so it wasn't about finishing. It was about getting no. off the track. <laughs> like trying to exit stage left quickly. <laughs> in addition, the crash itself wasn't caused by a faulty bobsled, as we see in the movie. It was caused simply by the inexperience of the driver, Dudley Stokes.
2: Poor Dudley, uh, in his defense. he is. This is a, his first week um, racing a, a, a four-man bobsled this is a new sled that he's still quite le- is still learning has a different feel and then that morning we pushed the seventh fastest start time he had never gone so fast before so essentially he's seeing a new track and driving a sled that he's still learning um, and the four-man is a beast boy if that thing gets ahead of you yeah you're in trouble so i remember i was Right behind Dudley, and my, my head was buried in the sled because uh, the, the day before he was watching video of me looking over his shoulder. And you have to understand the dynamic. He was at the time the team captain, but more importantly, he was an army captain, I was an army lieutenant. And he told me, take your goggles off, put your head in the sled. I'm like, aye aye sir, buried my head in the sled. So we're heading down the track and we hit, we came out of corner eight and we hit the wall. And I'm thinking, well, not good, but we're okay because there's a long straightaway before you hit nine. And then we hit the wall again. I'm like, okay, that's definitely not good because we're going to wave. It's called a wave when you go up and down. And if you watch the video, you'll see the cameras kind of train at the center of the corner and the, the sled goes in and out of the frame. And I anticipated that we would come out of the other end, slam the wall and be on our mirror way. And the next thing I know, we're over. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, we're over. How embarrassing. Because this is happening in front of the world, right? And the, the thing about a crash is, and I was always fearful of crashing in a four-man sled because I thought I would be claustrophobic. When you're in a sled, you're just in a crash, you're just kind of holding on and you hear the awful scrape of the sled on the ice. You smell the burning fiberglass and flashes of white and a ride that should take five seconds now feel like an eternity. And then we eventually come to a halt and uh, we're like, everybody's okay. And they say, yeah, you know, we are kind of jammed up against the ice, um, ice walls. And yeah, we kind of, you know, the track workers came and they kind of pulled the sled back and were able to crawl out.
0: So apart from a few bruised egos, everyone was fine. They were able to get up and make their way off the track.
2: And if you watch the tape, you, I was leading the group. I started shaking hands because this one guy reached over and shook my hand. And then like every other person wanted to shake a hand and people were cheering and saying, we love you. And, it, you know, it made us feel better just like this, just a little bit uh, in the moment.
0: Despite not finishing the race, the Jamaican bobsled team was celebrated by fans not only across Jamaica, but across the world. Now I don't know that Al Troutwig was necessarily wearing a Go Jamaica T-shirt, but it seemed like everybody else was. Even just having competed in the Olympics and doing what they did in the first two runs was a huge deal.
2: In pure sports terms, we absolutely failed. But I think there's a bigger lesson to learn there. That, that it was a success. I mean, we the first time we saw a bobsled was. September of 87 and here we are at the Olympic Games pushing the seventh fastest start time and saying to people all the world who might have been afraid to step out of their comfort zone and go after their dreams because it's so ridiculous. Man, look, we did it, so you can do it too. And that's the feedback I've gotten over the years from people around the world.
0: So what do we have? An inexperienced bobsled team that crashes their sled, is forced to carry it across the finish line and then gets romanticized in the movie, that's not all that surprising. But it doesn't mean it wasn't the right decision for the film. Here's Doug.
1: I was very comfortable with the Hollywood ending. I didn't think I would be. It caught me by surprise. Um, it was the one thing that stunned me when I first saw the movie. Uh, I went to see it at a theater just to see whatever other people. I was like, "Whoa!" Because I just, you know... They asked us to, to carry it, and I'm like, what are we doing, and we're carrying you know, it. Just seemed, it just seemed I didn't understand, you know, what they were going for there. <laughs> and then when I saw it with the swelling music and the, and the people, you know, clapping like they're going to, like, oh, I'm going to cry. Like, I said, oh, wow, wow. I mean, it's what we watch movies for, you know? And uh, Dawn Steel, God bless her soul, the, 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 the producer of this film, the late Dawn Steele, she always recognized it was a Rocky story. To me, it was just essentially about their dignity. You know, it reinforces the idea, the very important idea, particularly when we talk about kids, like get up. You can get, you can get up. Just get up and, you know, complete your mission, you know, irrespective of your standing. I mean, that's what as fathers, you know, this is what we dream of. We want our kids to be that
0: resilient and that brave, and, and, and we all want that. The perfect ending to the perfect movie. Maybe not the perfect movie, but very close. And it resonated with viewers immediately, including Devin and his teammates.
2: We saw this movie in Virginia. George had
0: invited us up. He's talking about George Fitch, president of the Jamaica Bobsled Federation.
2: And I remember after the movie, you know, Chris and I were in the restroom. And we both said something about, you know, feel, feeling inspired to do something. I don't know what, but we're, we're inspired to do something. Um, it's kind of interesting because, again, I go back to the weed thing. It was such a big thing for us. It was almost like, oh, well, they didn't have any weed in it great." you know And then you go, and then you go, "All right, uh, yeah, this movie was good.
0: It's, I, I, actually, yeah, it was we were inspired uh, by the storyline. The fact that the movie is so inspirational is a big part of why it has lived on in the public consciousness, and certainly my consciousness, for so long. Heck, it's also really funny. For Doug, the success and legacy of the film didn't really sink in until recently.
1: It's taken me about 25 years or so to really take in the scope of it, because, because it is, as you mentioned, a global, uh, had a global impact. But I think most importantly is also what you mentioned in terms of the success of generations that have embraced it. That is the most incredible aspect of the experience that I did not anticipate. You know, I'd see pictures of an eight-year-old in a bobsled in 1993, and I'd see a picture of an eight-year-old in a bobsled in 2021. Like, whoa! Like, it's pretty amazing, and uh, that is the most gratifying aspect of it. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, have a tendency to reach out to families, and and you uh, know, I basically just put, I'm basically put on my, uh, I'm like a clown. You know, I put on my clown suit, but I put on my my bobsledding stuff just to make the kids happy. I didn't know that it could play in church, but it can play in church, you know. My reaction was, wow, you know, this is uh, a very transcendent story that has a a universal appeal. And, oh God, I wish we all could have, most movies could be like this. It has kept it alive, the program alive. I mean, a big part of having a program thrive is credibility. And I think that it, it now has enormous credibility.
0: If you've listened to this podcast, the chances are you love this movie, as I do. If you just said, I'm curious about it, maybe you didn't love the movie, and you think that I'm overselling it. The truth is, I actually did love this movie. It's one of those movies that I know it's kind of disney I know it's kind of targeted at kids. I know it has the happy ending. But the truth is, it was about a real-life story. And if you're anything like me and I'm a sucker for a good ending, when that team picks up the sled and lifts it over their heads and Junior Devil, the guy on the team whose dad didn't want him on it, his dad's on the sidelines and he opens his jacket, you see Go Jamaica t-shirt, I'm not going to lie to you, I well up in tears every time. It just makes me, yes, I'm a sucker for a happy ending, but I'm also very sentimental. And for some reason, that movie brings a tear to my eye. I know how it ends... And yet it still does it every single time. So did the film do justice to the real story? Devin says it does.
2: I thought it was a, a good human interest story. It's really the kind of movie that I enjoy watching. You know, movies that uh, that are based on a true, true life story and and have powerful life lessons. I thought they did a good job in depicting the spirit of the team as underdogs fighting to overcome. So it's inspiring. It's, as I said, it, even if it was about. Uh, part of my life. I I
0: would have enjoyed it. Coming up next week on The Replay, sports on the big screen. Do you believe in miracles, Bruce? Because we're going to talk about it right now. I had told the kids that I'm going to be a nightmare.
1: I'm going to skate you guys into the ground. And I said, just know that. And that's this is what we do for a movie. Like you guys have to prepare for that. And I just skated them into the ground until they were exhausted. They kicked the crap out of
0: us. They weren't going to leave it up to me to try to act that out. They were going to make it happen. <laughs> the replay sports on the big screen is part of the Sirius XM sports podcast network. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, our sound designer, Robert Moore and Sirius XM senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen.
2: Sirius XM Podcasts.